Well, this is it. Not very fancy, but uh, we call it home. Dasher, dancer, prancer, vixen. Pretty, isn't it? The animal's own Christmas tree. Compliments to Mrs. Santa. The elves made that pretty little manger themselves. Just about the way the real one looked, I guess. Except for the donkey. They made him all wrong. He didn't look like that at all. How do I know? Why, that donkey was my ancestor. Nestor. Yes, sir. Nestor. The long-eared Christmas donkey. <sighs> elves are supposed to carve me a more accurate version. But you know them elves. Oh, well, come on. I'll, I'll show you the rest. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Well, some things are plain to clear eyes Some gifts go completely unrecognized We're shackled to hate, bound up by fear Straining to see my face in the mirror Yeah, I once knew a man who left town on the run He went looking for joy, but joy didn't come Let your name with praise be adorned Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born Well, welcome all to episode 36 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is our Christmas episode this year, and I'll be your host, David Grubbs. I'm a teaching assistant at the University of Georgia. With me, as usual, is... Uh, Michael Farmer, who is an adjunct instructor of developmental reading and writing at Tallahassee Community College. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm pretty good. I've got my wassail here for the Christmas episode. It's uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's <laughs> 55 degrees outside. Not quite cold enough for it, but uh, I don't care. Hey, you got some Christmas spirit working there. Go, yeah, go for it. Um, also, uh, Nathan Gilmore, who is an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? Uh, doing much better now. I, I just recovered a few hours ago from one of those 24-hour stomach bugs, so oh, I'm feeling Lordy. positively festive by comparison. <laughs> Christmas makes them sick, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cre- Advent, maybe. Um, so, sick with waiting. Um I just gave a, a, a final in my Britlet survey, so we'll we'll see how well they do. I've been um, done for the better part of a week. I spent all of Tuesday in bed. It was awesome. <laughs> that sounds yeah, cool. I, I spent most of today in bed. It was not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so see, right. listeners, that that's what we mean by difference. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into it, um, we've gotten... Uh, I believe some various kinds of feedback this week. Um, 
Anything you guys want to share? Ah, uh, yes. I have received a review copy of the Revelation of the Magi from Harper One. Uh, listeners, you can expect to see a review of that on the blog here in the next couple weeks. Uh, so far, the introduction is interesting. I I was half expecting, half dreading a very sensationalistic Dan Brown, uh, the the real story that those nasty Catholics suppress <laughs> because they don't want anyone having sex sort of intros. Uh, but instead, it was a very scholarly and I'm going to argue in the post perhaps a little bit too eagerly scholarly introduction. So um, now, about... this is this is a uh, third century Syrian text, is that right? The, the yes, book yes, and in fact, it it is a. Uh, not only Syrian geographically, but also in the Syriac language, which is a very rare dialect. There's only a few scholars in America who can translate it. So uh, it's actually a pretty interesting little read in that respect. Sounds very cool. Well, I had a buddy of mine who's a listener uh, post some feedback on uh, my wall on Facebook. Uh, this is Sean Reed, who listened to our uh, our Christian Rock podcast. And I'll just... I'll, I'll just read what he said. Uh, listening to the podcast now, and I'm really enjoying it, Christian Rock is something I've had a love-hate relationship with. By the way, I agree entirely with Michael's take on apologetics. I used to listen, listen to a Focus on the Family podcast. Forgive me, I was new and trying. And they loved them, or and they loved them, and I couldn't hit stop fast enough. They are seriously <laughs> bad, bad, bad. And he omits all of the vowels from seriously, which no, which which means it's really, really serious. Anyway, uh, I, I thought that was in, in encouraging, and it's it's good to know that your your taste is seconded, Michael. We uh, and I actually got an email from uh, Josh Altman Schofer, who we read an email from last week. First of all, he apologized for for uh, supposedly yelling at me about Johnny Cash. If you'll listen to last week's episode, you'll hear that story. I should point out he didn't actually yell at me. Uh, we did we did have a <laughs> argument about it, but. Um, Here's what he said. Uh, he said he enjoyed the episode. He was surprised that we didn't talk about Bob Dylan or maybe you two. And it's a bummer. Jamie didn't make it. Your shows always go different directions than I expect, which is nice. I particularly liked Grubbs' idea about what elements of life does rock and roll touch and how does Christianity speak to that. I'd never considered that before, but it's pretty much perfect. So there you go, David. Um, you, you had the, the uh, major insight of the episode. Yeah, the guy that knows Jack about rock. Well, and, and that's, that's what I wrote back and told Josh, um, and I, I would say that to the CWC guys as well, who um, I, I believe Chris, Chris Gertz was wanting to know if we talked about Bruce Coburn. And, and one thing we didn't do is try to define narrowly which artists belong in Christian rock and outside of it. And one of the reasons I, I avoided those questions is because... Um, because this is not a, a subject you guys have uh, studied, so to speak, as much as I have. So, so that, yeah. that's that's one reason I, I didn't um, I didn't go that direction. But uh, okay. anyway, I hope uh, I hope our other listeners enjoyed it as well. Cool. Well, uh, if there if there's no more to announce, um, well, I, I I do want to announce one little thing, uh, which is a slight redesign on. Uh, the mugs that we sell through Zazzle. Um, I haven't checked to see what uh, what Zazzle's uh, delivery times are, but uh, who who knows? Uh, you you may be in time to get some some fun, you know, Christian humanist muggage for Christmas. But you better hurry. Uh, yeah, but you better hurry. <laughs> All right. Um, well, 
to get started. Our topic uh, this week, uh, because this is Christmas, we're going to be talking about uh, the incarnation of God the Son. David, before we start talking about that, I just wanted to say that I think of the other two members of this podcast as like family to me. And, and like a lot of families, we have a tradition, which is that every Christmas you tell us the Christmas story. So I was hoping that you could uh, tell us and our listeners uh, the, the Christmas story in a very offhand, improvised manner, not at all prepared, for example. Right. Well, I, I don't have the conventional one from Luke, but I do, I do have something of a Christmas story. It's got Santa Claus in it. Oh, that sounds good. Let's hear it. Yeah. Now, this is completely guy. improvised, right? You're, you're not reading this or anything. Yes, this is completely improvisational in the manner of Homer or Beowulf. Uh, all all or, oral <laughs> oh, formulaic gosh. verse. <clears throat> I call this St. Nicholas at Nicaea, a short Christmas epic. Aid me in singing, O great Christmas muse, of St. Nick's anger and Arius bruise, of great Nicaea, both counsel and creed, but most of Jesus, who is God indeed. In Constantine's empire, things had got tense. Among the Christians there sprang up dissents. A priest named Arius began to preach. Some bishops who heard it sent up a screech. His notion was this, he put it in song. Those who say Jesus is God are all wrong. Christ's not eternal, for once he was not. God wasn't a father till he begot. Thalia are what these ditties were called. Some thought them catchy and some were appalled. The church's peace became precarious due to the heresy of Arius. So Arius Bishop told him to stop. Arius appealed. It went to the top. Constantine wrote them and said, Stop this feud. Harshing the emperor's buzz is quite rude. I just got this realm all settled in peace. This pointless wrangling must instantly cease. But the feud went on, so great Constantine called a meeting as had never been seen. Bishops from every nation then known were called to stand before Constantine's throne and abate the matter till it was done. Who, or what, really, is Jesus, God's son? The bishops gathered and sat in their chairs, then waited till trumpets played royal airs. Constantine is here, their brassy notes told. He entered in pomp in purple and gold. Thanksgiving was offered. Constantine rose, raised his hand, and said, Bishops, I propose that we now discuss what mars our faith's peace, that schism may heal and argument cease, and all the world's churches speak truth as one. Now let us begin, he said, and was done. Arius spoke first to make his own case. His voice was dulcet, his gestures all grace. To start off this council, hear my defense, to call Christ divine just doesn't make sense. If God is one, then to add Christ is two. Such polytheism just will not do. Jesus is Lord, but he's not eternal. Before God begat, Christ was a kernel, a thought deep within the great divine mind. The Father came first, the Son came behind. Instead of fancies, logic is fitter. If Christ is not God, then he's a critter. He's just a big angel, like Gabe or Mike. Rational doctrines are what I most like. Some bishops nodded, but others grumbled, impatient to see Arius humbled. Among those disgruntled was Nicholas, Myra's bishop of repute generous. 
but roused with hot anger and righteous zeal, his manners could be sometimes ungenteel. His eyes ceased to twinkle, but instead glared, as bellicose urges deep within flared. He strode forth with purpose, bearded jaw set, bearing his arm in belligerent threat. Arius, feeling quite safe, did not quell. Time froze for a moment, then the blow fell. Ho, ho, ho! As when Paul Bunyan, that great lumberjack, hefting his mighty broadaxe, took a whack at the wide trunk of some tall swaying pine, which mid a flurry of chips did incline its heavenward height toward low Mother Earth to sprawl supine on the loam of its birth, so Arius toppled and his wits fled as cartoon canaries flew round his head. The bishops were shocked and sat there aghast, Staring in silence until at long last, Constantine shouted, That isn't polite. You'll sit in prison till you feel contrite. So soldiers took Nicholas off to jail, without mitre or staff, to sit in a cell. While Arius' fellows mocked Nick's disgrace and thought that Nick's allies all had lost face. Constantine said in a dark, surly mood, as he called the next, This better be good. Then wise old bishop Alexander rose, Arius bishop, and chief of his foes. He said to Arius, Heretic bold, your speech isn't new, I know you of old. You seem to be smart, your rhetoric's good, but father and son you've misunderstood. Christ's begotten, but he's ever begot. He's called the I Am, as you have forgot. I am that I am is my holy name, the voice said to Moses out of the flame. I am! For he is, always and ever. Tell me, Arius, if you're so clever, why Christ said, before Abraham, I am. If Jesus is not God, that's just a sham. And he deserves to be stoned by the Jews, who thought he blasphemed when they heard the news. But what is worse, your gospel's too weak to give the kind of salvation we seek. If Christ is not God, then Christ cannot save man from his sin or his soul from the grave. No creature can represent the Most High. None can reach up to his infinite sky to hide sinful men from God's righteous frown. No man reaching up, but God reaching down, hiding us under his own nail-pierced hand. And man can't give life, for like trickling sand, man's life runs out, Scarce, e in, scarce enough e'en for one. But ah, tis quite other for God the Son, for in him is life, abundant and full, given to mortals to thwart the grave's pull. Who gives life, Arius? Is it not God? Then worship Christ Jesus, and his name laud. The bishops shouted, Alexander's right. Praise be to God that the truths come to light. This is the gospel of Peter and Paul, the faith of our fathers and of us all. Arius confused us with the right terms, but our meanings are not what he affirms. We say the same thing, he means another. How do we tell a wolf from a brother? How do we say this so folks aren't fuddled? Our sense is good, but our vocab's muddled. We need a good word, so we're not confused. Christ the same stuff as God? Constantine mused. They all cried, that. Scribe, write that down quick. If any dissent, we'll see through their trick. And thus was written the great Nicene Creed, the declaration that East and West heed. 
the Aryans lost, the Orthodox won. Then someone cried, hey, Nick's missing the fun of our Nicene victory. That's a Greek pun. So Nicholas then from jail was released, got his mitre back and joined in the feast. His eyes now twinkled, his mood was merry. He said, I'm sorry things got so hairy. I just got so mad I, that I couldn't speak. When I hear Christ slighted, I can't be meek. And Alexander, to you, thanks a bunch. You did more with your words than could my punch. So Constantine then forgave Nicholas and pardoned him for making such a fuss. Now this is my version of an old tale. I've changed a few details, but I mean well. Nicaea was real, and so was St. Nick, though the speeches are my poetic shtick. But there's a purpose to this story, and for which I must give God the glory. Now here's the point for the good of your soul. Jesus is God, and Arians get coal. The end. <laughs> and you, you, you just improvised that whole thing just now, David? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just that good. Amazing. And I'm sleep-deprived, and those two things have no, have no correlation whatsoever. <laughs> Truly amazing. So, that's it. Um, that's the uh, my Christmas story. I hope you guys liked it, and I hope our listeners do too. Um, you know, it's got Santa Claus in it, and it's got Jesus in it too, so uh, it should be a story that everyone likes. Ecumenical. Exactly. <laughs> that's my goal. Ecumenical just like Nicaea. Um, well, I guess we should get to actual questions since I've kind of monopolized things with story time so far. Um, I'm going to turn to you first, Nathan, uh, because before we can get to the Gospels, we have to deal with the way that the way that God had revealed himself to his people up to that point. So the Hebrew scriptures are emphatic on one thing if they're emphatic about nothing else, which is that God is one. Um, Israel's God declares through Isaiah that I am the Lord and there is no other. That's, you know, Isaiah 45, 18. Mm -hmm. But the Apostle Paul takes God's words from later in Isaiah 45 and applies them to Jesus Christ to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. He does this in Philippians 2.11. So would Isaiah's audience have been utterly shocked by this application? I mean, I take it as a given that the New Testament teaches Jesus as God and man. But to what extent is the Old Testament – does the Old Testament prepare us to expect a God-man as Messiah? Well, one of the difficulties that, that arises here, David, is that the word Lord in English uh, is a translation of the Greek kurios, the Hebrew Adonai, and neither one of those is actually the name of God. Uh, whenever we see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament – uh, that is the result of a rabbinic tradition where instead of pronouncing the holy name, uh, you s simply say the word for Lord. And it's a word that you know can mean an earthly ruler, uh, it can mean a heavenly power, it can mean a, a fair range of things. But in the tradition of respecting uh, the third commandment, I had to think about my numbers there, uh, not <laughs> using the name in vain, in vain, right, uh, the rabbinic tradition arose that you never even spoke the name, even when you were reading the scriptures and it came up in the text. Uh, now, interestingly, that's also where we get the word Jehovah, is that Christian scholars would hear rabbis read Adonai when they got to that word, and they said, well, those aren't the consonants there. So they took the vowels from Adonai, applied them to the consonants from the divine name, and you got Jehovah. Uh, so at any rate, that's a little trivia. 
the Hebrew Bible, you're right, insists on the unity of God. Uh, one of my pet peeves is when people take the opening chapters, opening verses, pardon me, of Genesis and say, well, they say, let us make man in our image. Uh, that's simply a grammatical construct for whatever reason. Uh, and I'm not going to give a whole Hebrew language l lecture right now. Uh, the word Elohim uh, in Hebrew is grammatically plural, uh, but conceptually singular. Uh, so the, ver the, the pronoun that matches up with it is also plural, all right? So it's something like the English word everybody. Uh, grammatically, it's a singular word, uh, but everybody knows that when you talk about everybody, you're talking about one, more than one person. At yeah, any rate. Except, yeah, except it takes a, uh, like you said, it takes a singular verb, so every freshman and every freshman composition class across the country is confused. Oh, sure, sure, and that's one of my stock lessons for freshman comp, so. Everybody becomes he or she, folks, not they. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So at any rate, you know, I think that when you get to Jesus, the man born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem, raised to heaven, uh, you are talking about a genuine theological novum there. It's something that came out of the blue, as far as I can tell, uh, it's not something that anyone expected, and this is where the Catholic Bible reading practice uh, that's usually rendered as sensus plenior or a fuller sense really becomes handy, uh, because that way you can affirm that in the historical moment of Isaiah, of Moses, of Elijah, of Zechariah, you would have had a strong and unswerving affirmation of the unity of God and yet you can say, with the advent of Christ into the world, an extra sense is added to those verses. So, for instance, when Isaiah would have been imagining himself talking about an earthly king when he talked about uh, a, son, a child to you is born and his name will be God is with us, uh, I think that it's a valid move for Matthew to take that and take out the verb and say, his name will be God with us. Uh so in other words, David, you know, I, I would say that, you know, like I said, the construct of census plenier ultimately strikes me as a nice tool for reading the Hebrew Bible in, the, in its historical integrity, in its moment, and yet affirming that it is also the Bible of Jesus Christ, the Bible that proclaims Jesus Christ, and it does speak to us of the incarnate Christ, even if it wouldn't have been on the horizon of Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, so on and so forth. So you're saying that the the meaning the meanings that the New Testament writers like Paul are drawing out of something like like Isaiah that it's not something that Isaiah was aware of something but something that that's kind of latently there that later revelation brings out. I I would say it is a sense that is added. You know, like I said, that construct of census plenier. I don't think that you have to hold up the mind of Isaiah as the source of divine revelation. Right. Uh, in other words, I think that you can say, and I, I mean, this is a very rabbinic move. Uh, before it is a Christian move, we Christians took it over and used it quite nicely. Uh, that <laughs> the text itself multiplies its own meaning. So in other words, you don't have to say uh, Abraham had a full understanding of the Torah of Moses uh, in order to say that he worshipped the God who gave the Torah to Moses. Uh, you can say that in some ways he was observing Torah not even having heard the Torah. Likewise, I think that you can say that Isaiah, although he would not have had any conception that a human body uh, would also be the person of God on earth, the kavod Adonai, 
Uh, I think that it's a valid move for Matthew and Paul and the New Testament writers to make that leap. Now, like I said before, you know, I think that the mistake that people make is that because we are so concerned with authorship uh, in terms of the biblical text, we want to say that, you know, Isaiah had this sort of time machine vision to where he could say, okay, you know, 700 years in my future, uh, there's going to be a baby born of a tecton uh, in Bethlehem and all this sort of stuff is going to happen. I don't think that move is necessary to affirm that Isaiah speaks to us of Christ. Yeah. And by Isaiah, I mean the text of Isaiah. You don't have to say that the person Isaiah had a full understanding of it. Nathan, I have a more conservative hermeneutic than you, and, and oh, that's yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. yeah, that that notion that Isaiah had to know what he was talking about has always has always st- struck me as rather suspect, yeah. and really only an issue if you don't consider God to be the sovereign author of the Bible in some real sense. What yeah. matters well, sure, is what I mean, God yeah. had in mind when Isaiah wrote that. Right, right. And to go back to our church music, just because I love to beat that dead horse. You know, the whole idea that the Song of Solomon is an allegory for Christ in the church, I find that to be a valid hermeneutical move because of this idea of census plenier. Uh, So in other words, I can say, all right, you know, this person who is composing this in the voice of a woman uh, singing in praise of her man and of their love for each other, uh, whoever that writer is probably didn't have in mind the multinational, multilingual body of Christ that would arise in the first century after Jesus of Nazareth, all right? At the same time, I still think that that allegory is a valid reading of that text. So we can take, can we take it as an axiom that a prophet always says more than they know? I would say any text says more than they know, especially prophets. Yeah. Cool. Well, because once you get, once you get divine inspiration into the mix, you're going to make something even more, um, polyvocal i mean i mean it's just going to be there's going to be an an interpretation and an application for you know every time in history well think about it this way you think about those times when the psalms especially but other parts of the bible talk about the torah and the scriptures more generally as providing all wisdom uh it would be great folly to say a book as brief as the christian bible much less the hebrew bible contained in itself all wisdom unless there was the possibility for the multiplication of meaning. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I think that definitely uh, the idea of added meaning, uh, depending on the era of salvation, is, is, like I said, a valid hermeneutical principle. Not that I'm sure any of us wants to throw out the author's intended meaning either. Because no, not at all. That is... And again, that's why the census plenier construct is handy, because you can maintain that historical integrity without, therefore, discarding those things that are added because of the advent of Christ. Yeah. So, in other words, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Some of us can. <laughs> I guess we can shift from from the Old Testament to the New now um, and talk a bit about a bit about that context. Um Michael, uh, one of the arguments that comes up a lot in when you're reading Unitarian uh, kind of argue, arguments about the, the nature of God and the nature of, of, of the Son of God um, 
is that Christians were led astray in the early centuries by an essentially pagan conception of divinity. I mean, you see it in Jehovah's Witness writings, especially, but uh, I'm, you know, it's it's all around. It's all around. Um, so, what would the phrase "Son of God" mean to a pagan Greek or a Roman? And do we see any reflection of those pagan ideas in the New Testament or the writings of the fathers or any interaction with that? Well, certainly, when you think of the phrase son of God in connection with ancient Greece or ancient Rome, you're probably talking about people who were quite literally fathered by the pantheon, right? So Hercules' father is Zeus, and so he is a son of God. The, so the many gods people are fathered by Zeus. What's that? Now? Yeah. Yeah. I said so many people are fathered by Zeus. It's like, like Genghis Khan. But um, <laughs> Zeus himself, it's worth noting, is a son of a god. Right. right. His, his father is also a god. So, I mean, that, that's really what you're, what you're talking about. The, the New Testament distinction, I think, is that Christ becomes the only begotten son of God. He's the only one. He's on a different plane of existence than Hercules or Achilles because the Hebrew God is on a different plane of existence than Zeus, meaning the Hebrew God exists and Zeus does not. Um, it's also worth pointing out there are various deity incarnation stories from the era just preceding Christ. I believe um, Alexander the Great was often considered to be uh, an incarnate deity or the son of a, of a deity. Um, and, and, and because there are those pagan traditions that sometimes sound a bit like the Christian story. Um, I think C.S. Lewis's notion that Christianity is the completion of all myths and not just Hebrew myths, I think that's a really important and helpful notion in this case. Because we don't have to ignore we don't have to ignore the fact that, that there were other incarnation stories in ancient Greece and we don't have to pretend that that means there's nothing special or true about uh, about the Christian one. Right. Anything you want to add, Nathan? Yeah, I would add to that that the Son of God phrase is one that appears in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, I'm, I'm trying to think if, uh, yeah, I mean, it appears in that formulation as well, and I'll get to that in a second. But for instance, Psalm 2, uh, speaking presumably to a Jerusalem king, says, uh, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. Today I have begotten you. Uh, and the idea there seems to be not that uh, the Jerusalem king does not have a father, because if the Israelites were concerned with anything uh, to an almost obsessive level, it was with bloodlines. Uh, you wanted to be able to trace your bloodline back to David. So when we see this phrase, I have begotten you, uh, what most scholars think about that is that this is a statement of a special status in creation of the Jerusalem king. In other words, uh, he is to God as a son is to a father in a traditional tribal family. Uh, so in other words, the word of the Jerusalem king functions as the word of God. Uh, to oppose the Jerusalem king is to oppose God, so on and so forth. So the son of God certainly comes along with the phrase when it's applied to Jesus. And then later, I think, you know, uh, it runs into, especially when Paul and others start uh, proselytizing in Greek god-worshipping lands, it starts to come in contact with these stories of Hercules, Achilles, uh, you know, all these folks who were, in other senses, sons of God. Uh, so, I mean, it's definitely something that, you know, that it, it's no coincidence that it took several centuries uh, to get right 
what exactly sort of being Jesus of Nazareth is. Well, excellent. It, it, it just seems that, you know, the, we, we can't just uh, look at our New Testament, really, I guess, and, and, and say that, uh, that when it says Son of God on the page, <laughs> that uh, the, the meaning to the reader or, or the reading to us should be, should be obviously just lying there. Well, David, I've been teaching Sunday school for 15 years now. I started in 1995, and one of the speeches that I have to give fairly frequently whenever we talk about the New Testament, especially the Gospels, is my Jesus is not Hercules speech. Hmm. Uh, Because, frankly, a lot of folks have this conception that what you read about in Greek mythology is basically what happened, you know, that, you know, God uh, somehow descended into Bethlehem and, you know, by some strange biological means got Mary pregnant. Uh, And, you know, that's one of those things that decidedly does not what the church historically has taught about Jesus Christ. You know, the the, the bottom line here, you know, is that the incarnation is something that rewards sustained study, sustained reflection, sustained meditation. Uh, Sometimes people portray the early church as quibbling over one or two Greek letters but the fact of the matter is, when you were talking about a genuine theological novum, something that had never happened before, something that will never happen again, uh, you do have to take your time with it. So I'd say continue to study it. Well, we really got to move forward uh, in church history now, uh, but it's frankly impossible for us to cover anything near the scope of all, all the theological thinking that's been done about uh, the incarnation, you know, from the church fathers up till now. So I think for this bit of the conversation, we'll actually let Christmas carols do it for us. So um, I've asked you gentlemen to pick a couple of your favorite Christmas car- Christmas carols that deal with the theology of the incarnation or have some allusions to it and unpack what's in those carols that we sing and maybe don't pay attention to. And then if if there's some relevant context to relate them back to, uh, go ahead and do that. Now, do you want us um, to sing the uh, sing the theology, David, or should oh, we read no. them in monotone? <laughs> That's uh, that is uh, it's unnecessary to sing them. <laughs> <laughs> Could we maybe uh, get Nathan Gilmore to rap them? Um, that I, I leave that uh, in his capable hands. Answer is or, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nathan, uh, what, what do you want to start us off with? Well, sure. One of the one of the hymns that has remained one of my favorites over the years, uh, and actually it's a 12th century Latin hymn that gets translated into English in the 19th century, but it's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Mm. And one of the reasons I, I enjoy it is because, especially if one gets into the, past the first two verses that everyone knows, uh, and into the later verses, you really do get a compendium of Christological titles from the New Testament. You get Emmanuel, you get Son of God, you get Wisdom of God, uh, you get Rod of Jesse, uh, you get Root of Jesse, you get all sorts of things highlighting the Davidic character of Christ's Messiahship as well as uh, the divinity of Christ. Uh, And it's one of those that, you know, I, I generally like the melody. Uh, it's one that honestly I, I could sing pretty much year round in church. Uh, I don't necessarily think of it as a Christmas song, although, you know, because the opening, uh, line is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it's a natural fit for Advent. Um, the other one I, I would bring up, uh, and this is sort of an oddball one for me. 
but it's one that I learned the history of, and then I went back and read the lyrics, and all of a sudden it meant something that it didn't mean before, and that is the song Do You Hear What I Hear, uh, made famous by Bing Crosby's version of it, um, and you know, re-recorded it over and over and over. Uh, it's one that the kids at my own church do in their Christmas program every year. Uh, what I discovered about it, though, is that it is written in 1962 at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Huh. And when I realized that, I went back and looked at the lyrics of it, and all of a sudden I realized that, you know, uh, when the night wind speaks to the little lamb and asks him if you see what it sees, what it sees is a star dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. Now, I had never thought about this before, but customarily, st- stars do not have tails. <laughs> uh, and likewise, in the second verse, you know, when the lamb speaks to the shepherd boy asking, do you hear what I hear? It's a song high above the tree, uh, not a beautiful melody, but with a voice as big as the sea. And what I came to realize is this is, you know, commenting on the insanity of a room full of egomaniacs in Moscow and a room full of egomaniacs in Washington deciding on the fate of millions of people at the push of a button. Uh, you know, this is the Christmas story with a nuclear missile incoming. <laughs> is and, the, you know, so, so those are air raid sirens. Is, is, is that, I, that That's what I read. I mean, you know, I, I, otherwise these things just don't appear in any version of the Christmas story I'm aware of. You, you know, I've always like, like so many Christmas carols, I've always located that one in uh, Victorian England. Which is where no, no, all Christmas carols take place. Yeah, yeah. And I've, now, keep in mind... In Dickens land. Keep, keep in mind, I was six years old when I first heard this. But I've always vaguely pictured the king in that song as King Henry VIII in Victorian England. Yes, I understand. <laughs> king Henry VIII is several centuries before Victorian England. But I've always pictured him, uh, him, uh, him as the king in that. Also, I want to point out the uh, how how bizarre that song is because the king who if you're reading it as this is happening at the birth of christ would be herod says uh, let's bring good things to uh, the baby born which i, I think oh yeah is- yeah and moreover and this is what's fascinating if you put it within that cuban missile crisis context is you expect a king to prepare for war to wage war to do these sorts of things uh instead he says just go tell the people everywhere pray for peace and I mean, you know, I, again, I mean, you know, this is one of those things where I don't know why it struck me so profoundly, but, you know, it's this moment in history where we've got to turn to Christ because at this point, kings preparing for war are going to kill all of us. That huh. was my favorite Christmas carol when I was a kid. My mother and I used to sit at the piano and sing it. And now you've uh, completely ruined that memory. Well, I, honestly, Michael, I it used to be one of my least favorites because I thought it was just sort of a stream of consciousness romp where you bring a child silver and gold instead of a blanket because it's cold. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, now that I am aware of the context, I mean, it really is one of those moments where, um, in my mind, this is someone who gets the advent of Christ. Yep. See, I always thought the tail, uh, the tail as big as it, or the, I, I always thought that meant that it was a comet. Anyway. Okay, okay. Well, plus, you see those pictures of, uh, of the star of Bethlehem with the the light from it shining down on the city, like a like a. Oh, okay, tail. okay. So the sort of cruciform star, then. Yes, that's yeah. that's what I was. Okay, thinking. all right, all right. 
I mean, but huh. again, that's one of those songs, and all Christmas carols are really like this if you grew up in a house that sang them. I mean, all those songs are so deeply embedded in my reptile brain because I've been hearing them since I was born, essentially, that I mm-hmm. it, it's very hard to think about them logically. Yeah, I, I was really surprised when I dug into this just how many really familiar ones I knew came from like the late 1800s. Almost like, all of them. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> I, I mean, except O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, and Good King Wenceslas. I mean, they're all they're all relatively recent. Yeah. Good, well, good King Wenceslas being the lamest of the uh, of the Christmas carols, except the first Noel, which is one I really, really hate. Do you know why I hate the first Noel? It has that line on a cold winter's night that was, that was so, so deep. deep. <laughs> yeah. I hate that line too, Michael. So I. Well, in defense of the first Noel, wasn't it a French carol that was just awkwardly translated? I think it's an English carol. Oh, okay. I think. Okay. I mean, quite okay, a few well, can, can we have an ex-cathedral uh, pronunciation that that line, whether a translation or original, is lame? Yes, it is so undeep. Yeah, that's yeah, it's lame. <laughs> All right, ex-cathedral <laughs> folks, you heard it here. All right, so, Michael, you got any carols for us? I do, I do. I want to talk about O Come All Ye Faithful, which is an 18th century English hymn. Um, and it's really, really theologically heavy. And again, you don't realize that because we really only sing the first verse, which is the least heavy verse. But when you get there, there's one I'd never even heard before I looked up the song. Uh, I'm not going to bother singing it, uh, but, but it goes, True God of true God, light from light eternal, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten, not created. So, I mean, those words are straight from a piece of Orthodox liturgy that I vaguely remember. Because it's English, I'm sure it must come from the Book of Common Prayer as well, which means it it has some common source even further back. But uh, that is as heavy... Yeah, yeah, that's that's the Nicene Creed, basically. The whole distinction between creation and begetting. That must not be the version we say, the, the begotten, not created. But I mean, that's that's as heavy theology as I've ever heard in a hymn, let alone a Christmas carol. So, and then the the last line of the last verse of that song is "Word of the Father now in flesh appearing." So yeah. that's a that's a really heavy hymn that's um you know fun to sing too. Um, although I never, how do you pronounce it in Latin? Adeste fidelis. Okay. I was yeah, when I was a kid. Anyway. When I was a kid, I saw those words, and I always pronounced them "adest fidelis." But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I've already proven what a stupid kid I was. <laughs> and um, the other one, I, uh, the other one I want to talk about is "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," which, um, as we all know, is Charles Wesley. Um, and, and that's another pretty heavy song. And again, we leave out the verse that's heavy. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with man as man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So, I mean, again, I, I think what we're noticing about these Christmas carols is that the verses we tend to sing are the, um, oh, I don't Preamble. know, the, the soundbite <laughs> verses, and the, then we leave out the ones with more theological content. So uh, if if you're the if you're a worship minister, you might want to look into singing the 45th verse of O Come All Ye Faithful. Although I'd, I'd, I have to say in praise of my own music minister, Mark Thacker, we always do the Hail the Incarnate Deity verse when we do that song. I awesome. remember being a kid and wanting for them to do the second verse of uh, What Child Is This? so we could all say ass in church. You know, <laughs> the, the ox and ass are sleeping. Nice. 
So yeah. uh, <laughs> we never skipped, even though we were Baptists and that's the second verse, we always skipped it. You're supposed to skip the third <laughs> verse. And then I, I did want to talk briefly about a modern Christmas song, um, Vigilantes of Love, On to Bethlehem, which is a song nobody knows. I'll link to it in the uh, show notes. But it's got a great line. God wraps himself up in human skin for those who need to touch. And God let them drive the nails in for those of us who know way too much. And I think what that song does is it does a really great job of connecting the incarnation and the Christmas that celebrates the incarnation with the kind of trivial failures of our day-to-day lives. So that's a, you know, not a not a Christmas carol exactly, but it is a song about Christmas that uh, that deals directly with the incarnation. Well, and it shows that, that you know, the redemption and the crucifixion, the death at the end is is part of part of the incarnation yes it's important it's, they're of a piece <laughs> um what well, I, I thought it was uh, i thought it was funny michael the ta- talking about the uh hail hail the incarnate deity uh, i'm going to tell this story i'm also going to get in trouble when i get home but i'm going to go t- i'm going to tell it anyway uh my wife confessed that the first time she was singing that that particular carol in church and they sang that verse. She giggled when she got to hail the incarnate deity. Uh, now, part of that is because of the the elision there. Hail yeah, incarnate. incarnate. Yeah, it, it's it's all kind of lumped in there. It's awkward to sing. Um, but also, she said that she giggled because she's like heavy theology in a Christmas carol. Which uh, I'm I'm I must confess, and I uh, I, I feel bad about this now. But I looked upon her with judgmental scorn when she said that. Um, but you know, that's me. I'm like, no, don't make don't make light of hail the incarnate deity. But uh, I, I do think that's that's kind of an impression that we get that carols are lightweights. Well, because if you get the Christmas Carol book, you're going to alternate between "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" and "Oh Come All You Faithful" and freaking Jingle Bells and Jingle Bell Rock. <laughs> Which uh, is the dumbest song ever written, by the way. There is no song dumber than Jingle Bell Rock. Santa Baby? Rocking no, around the Baby's Christmas clever. tree? What's Santa that? Baby is Rocking that? around the Christmas tree? That gets a pass because Brenda Lee sings it. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jingle Bell Rock is an idiot song. Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Time and Jingle Bell Chime. Snowing and blowing up bushels of fun. Now the jingle hop has, but those are barely English words. <laughs> but but you know them. I'm I'm actually. How do you impressed. not know them? They play them round the clock every Christmas. Good lord. Anyway, the the reason Christmas. we tend to think of "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" as being lightweight is because it gets put in your Christmas Carol book right next to the legitimately stupid Christmas songs. I mentioned in the church music episode the uh, the hymn by the. Fourth century uh, Spanish uh, gentleman Aurelius Prudentius of the Father's Love Begotten, which is treated as a Christmas carol now, but then was a hymn, and it was basically the the Nightingale Creed dropped into verse and put to music. Um, and thinking about that, and also doing research on the Nicene uh, on the Council of Nicaea, I noticed uh, more starkly er- the Thalia of Arius. That Arius was writing these songs about Jesus not being God, about the Son having a beginning in time and being a creature. And in 
that the Aryan heresy was spread by song. So it seems kind of appropriate that we should that we should counter that with song and that maybe Christmas carols grew out of a response disseminating, well, a heresy about Jesus. I don't know, just a theory. I never thought of it like that before, David. Um, I did have a, I, I did have a, another that I wanted to bring up, uh, and this one, Latin too. Uh, o Magnum Mysterium. Um, a lot of different. Uh, it, it's a very short Latin text from the the Christmas matins. Uh, goes, oh, great mystery and wonderful sacrament that animals should see the newborn Lord lying in a manger, and blessed is the virgin whose womb was worthy to bear Christ the Lord. Alleluia. It's very, very short, um, but it's been put to music, uh, choral music. I mean, it's it's choral, obviously, uh, but it's 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 had so many different tunes written for it over the years. Um, and I, I've I've performed it as part of a choir, but the the focus is the the great mystery is that the animals can see their is that the animals get to see their God, that the incarnation in this little text is not just about God becoming a man for men, but also God becoming man, and the animals being able to see. It's just like and, Nestor the long-eared Christmas donkey. Egg, well, yes. And and uh, O Magnum Mysterium made me think about all those goofy claymation and whatnot, little Christmas special that I remembered as a kid. And it's like, you know, the little donkeys and all that kind of thing. And think, wait a minute. That's kind of deep in a St. Francis kind of way. Now, do you think he's named Nestor, the long-eared Christmas donkey, because he's named after Nestorius? Probably not. Because <laughs> I really... This Nestorius, the long-eared Christmas donkey, who thinks that Jesus has two different natures. <laughs> that, that well, that special, as I understand it, is mostly about fourth-century heresies. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look at it again. <laughs> anyway, that that was one that I wanted to that I wanted to point out because it seems to have connections with kind of some of the sillier Christmas things that we might be familiar with. But to realize that you know, wait a minute, that actually has deeper roots. And the idea of the incarnate God interacting with animals is something that Christians have been fascinated with for a very long time. And see, it's funny because I've got small kids. I always think of the animals at the Christmas scene as being there so that the two and three year olds can be up on stage, but not say any lines. <laughs> Every year I'm always a shepherd. Well, no, yeah. I mean, my boy got promoted to a wise man this year from, you know, two years as a cow so have you seen that nestor the long-eared christmas donkey though nathan i have not actually i I, I was it is so incredibly trippy and so incredibly dark like nestor has long ears like dumbo so all the other donkeys make fun of him and he and his mom somehow end up wandering through the snow together and it's really cold so he lays down and she gets on top of him and he wakes up and she's dead she's dead man (laughs) Wow. That's dark. Yeah, so and then he of, ends up being the donkey. It's like it's like Rudolph and Bambi. <laughs> and Dumbo. But he ends up being the donkey that takes Mary to uh, Bethlehem because he can hear really well or he, his ears keep her warm or something. I don't remember. 
<laughs> Jesus is actually in it. But my favorite thing, my favorite thing about Nestor the Long-Eared Christmas Donkey is that Nestor, when we meet him, is a donkey in Santa Claus's uh, stable. Wait, so, so Santa Claus precedes Jesus. Well, he afterwards. No, he's telling us man. the story. Oh, flashback. Okay, okay, okay. Right, 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 right. right. Anyway, I encourage yeah, everybody to go I had watch. This gig. <laughs> I encourage everybody to go watch Nestor the Long-Eared Christmas Donkey and uh, and revel in a, in a bygone age of Christmas special because uh, they would never they would never pull anything like that off again. I'll say. <laughs> well, I managed to get Santa Claus and Jesus in the same thing, but not by way of a donkey. Um, yeah, not by way of Nestorius, but by Arius. Very nice. Well, I think. We, uh, we we need to be moving on. So, Nathan, you're our self-declared Miltonist, even if you did declare it under the gun, as it were. Um, and we're doing a podcast about the incarnation of God the Son, so you know this is inevitable. Um, does Milton deserve to be Santa slapped for his De Doctrina Christiana? Um, that's something that gets floated, uh, I, I think, in, in Milton circles. So... What's that issue, and what do you think about it? All right, well, I'm going to try to hold myself back because this is about a half-hour lecture. Uh, first of all, <laughs> if you are in a circle of Miltonists, and the question comes up, was Milton an Arian? The people who are quickest to say, yes, he was, uh, you can predict with pretty good accuracy that they're going to be of the post-Romantic, uh, Michael Empson, Neil Forsyth, satanic camp of Milton studies. Uh, if they deny it, fairly quickly. You can be fairly certain that they're in the line of Lewis, Petrides, and Stan Fish. Uh, and if I happen to be in the circle, you'll note that I get real quiet when that question comes up because uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I spent half a semester talking about just this text with Coburn Freer at UGA for an independent study, and I'm still not sure. All right. So let me say a little bit about this text. First of all, it was an unpublished text uh, it was dictated and written down by two scribes because it was composed after Milton had gone blind. Uh, and in section 1.5, which is the one that everyone wants to focus on, uh, the text says, among other things, that uh, the Son is the firstborn of creation, therefore being born. Uh, since that is a verb, it takes place in sequence. Uh, and being mm. the firstborn of creation... Uh, therefore, since he is of creation, he is of creation. Uh, now, all of that having been said, this is, as far as we can tell, a rough draft of his theology. We do have evidence from his published works uh, that, as a younger man, he did uh, hold a pretty standard English Protestant version of Trinitarian theology. Uh, we also know that in Paradise Lost, Satan is made out to be a great fool uh, for believing that the Son is not eternal as the Father is eternal. All right? Um, so, you know, like I said, when I dig into this, the first thing that I want to say is, is Milton an Arian? No, he's not, because the nature of his objections have to do with the Protestant principle of sola scriptura. He wants to say, what can we get from the text of the New Testament as it's been handed down for a thousand years of course, when Arius is doing his thing, it's more based on philosophical reasoning uh, because the canon in its contemporary, in its historical form is still coming into shape. 
All right. Uh, so, I mean, all, all of that having been said, you know, if if I, you know, had a gun to my head and someone <laughs> asked me, you know, uh, is Milton an Aryan? Uh, I would say no, but. <laughs> well, uh, I did. I, I've read that section of D-Doctrina and it reminded me of nothing so much as a Jehovah's Witness apologetics manual that I read once. And, I'm sure, and you know, part of part of what they have in common is they want to take the text of the Greek New Testament and say, let's form our theology exclusive of the history of the church based only on these Greek letters on this page. Right, right. And uh, and sometimes uh, he's there, there's this one little bit where he goes on for a good chunky paragraph about essences and substance and... Uh, the, the philosophical incoherence of Trinitarian theology. And then in the next paragraph says, I'm not going to be talking about philosophy. I'm going to be talking about scripture. But then in the next paragraph, his reasonings about, well, Jesus said this, so this means these things about his essence and his substance. Anyway. It, 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 <laughs> it's kind of the danger of a very narrow view of sola scriptura, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's... it's a misunderstanding to say that when somebody says they believe in sola scriptura, they mean only the Bible has truth. And, right, right. And, and, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of the uber-Protestant mistake to do what, what Milton's doing there. Well, sure, and at that point in his career, you know, it's late in his career, Milton is dictating this to scribes. Uh, the Catholics have reassumed the throne of England. Uh, and he is in the process, you know, I, I think when he dies, of trying to put together a theological manual that preserves the Puritan Protestant theology uh, that, you know, he spent his pro professional career upholding. Uh, now, do I think that this rough draft of it would have lasted all the way through to publication? I don't know. Uh, and like I said, whenever someone is very, very insistent that this represents the real Milton as opposed to the published Milton of Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and, you know, poems of 1629, I always get real suspicious because what they're doing then is they are shaping Milton in a certain image, uh, in a certain sort of romantic revolutionary image uh, that frankly I think discounts the complexity of the man and the writer. Mm. Did you um did you want to say anything about uh that uh that Christmas poem that he wrote when he was much younger? I assume it's in the sixteen twenty nine volume. Yeah, yeah, the Nativity Ode. Uh I mean all all I'm gonna say really about the text of it is, you know, the upshot of it is it's a narrative of the Nativity. Uh what's most interesting to the young Milton about the Nativity is that when Christ is born uh in Palestine, all of the gods of the, the Levant uh, basically retreat underground. They realize that they can't exist in the same world as God on earth, true God on true earth. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, he refers early in the poem to the sun before he becomes incarnate, sitting in the midst of trinal unity. So, right. I mean, you don't get much more Trinitarian than that. You know, yeah. so again, you know, when I... When people ask me, you know, was Milton ultimately a Unitarian or a Trinitarian, uh, I, I do my standard Gilmore thing and say yes. 
And that's why you don't ask Nathan Gilmore a question. Yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> You're going to get a half-hour lecture, and I'm still not going to answer it. <laughs> Teflon Nate. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask Michael a question, so since I can't ask Nate questions. Me, um, I just I just make very strong pronouncements that I go back on the next week. <laughs> I, I think Nathan doesn't want to do that. <laughs> so, Do I contradict um, myself? Very well. I contradict myself. Do you contain multitudes? Um, a, uh, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. <laughs> so, yeah, it, they've been playing the Christmas music for several weeks now, right? Um, so I'm in a Buffalo's last week eating my chicken fingers and uh, listening to all the worst Christmas carols ever. And one of them catches my attention. It's called Someday at Christmas. I'm sure most people are probably familiar with it. I don't know this uh, song, David, I, I must say. And I, of course, even though I haven't been doing anything this week, too lazy to look it up. Okay. Uh, anyway, so I'm, li- I'm listening to it, listening to the lyrics, and I'm realizing this is a song about a messianic age that doesn't have a messiah in it. You know, someday at Christmas, you know, there will be peace on earth, basically. And then I remembered a 19th century carol that came upon a midnight clear, which also speaks optimistically about this future age of gold, this future peaceful age, but doesn't mention Jesus at all. So can we have a someday at Christmas without God in the flesh? First, David, I got to say that It Came Upon the Midnight Clear is one of my very favorite Christmas carols. I think it's very elegant, it's very majestic, and it has one of the best verses in any hymn out there, uh, which I'm now going to recite in a monotone in lieu of singing it. Still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled, and still their heavenly music floats o'er all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains they bend on hovering wings, and ever o'er its babel sounds the blessed angels sing. I really love that verse, um, and... I have to say, I did not realize that it came upon a midnight clear doesn't mention Christ, but I looked at it and it sure doesn't. And, and really, <laughs> really, I'm not sure it's a Christmas song. It, it's really, it really sounds more apocalyptic than that. It says that the days are hastening on by the prophet bards foretold. So, well, it I, makes sense when you look it up and realize that the author is a Unitarian minister. Edmund Sears, yes. Um, I think what you could argue is that Christ <laughs> is lurking around the outskirts of that song. But um, he's certainly not in it. And I don't think the song has bad theology. It's just incomplete theology. There's something rather large to the Christmas story missing from it. So you've got this Christmas without incarnation. And really what you're looking at is a Christmas without an Easter. And when you have that, you become it becomes somebody blandly lit, wishing for a bland peace over bland men. What the, what the incarnation adds to Christmas <laughs> is specificity. The incarnation makes things real. It becomes more than a hope. It becomes a certitude. There will be peace on earth, and it's going to come about through these means. It's not going to be, it's not going to be the king telling um, his people to pray for peace. It's it's going to be peace comes because Christ comes back. So the incarnation, the, the incarnation is important because it leads to Easter, which leads to ascension, which leads to the second coming. And without it. Without it, you may have vague, warm feelings. You may have nice songs. Like I said, I really love It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. I love uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which is very much very much along the same lines, although it may mention it may mention Christ. I, I, didn't, uh, I don't have that in front of me. But, um, 
Yeah. What 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 the incarnation adds is that specificity. Mm. Well, and and also the way that it happens. Um, you know, someday at Christmas is a Stevie Wonder song, um, which you know that's great. But when you if you know, if you hear it sometime, pay attention to it. And it's, uh, you know, someday at Christmas, there'll be no tears, all men equal and no men have fears. One shining moment, one prayer away uh, from our world today. And someday all our dreams will come true and there will be a world where men are all free and all of, the, but there's nothing in the song. It, it just ends with someday at Christmas. And mm. and there's there's no instrument in the music in the song. There's not there's nothing to make that happen except it will be it will come. Well, because Christmas is a time of miracles. Yeah, but if you just have faith, but have faith in what? Yeah, it, it just it just seems to be just yeah you know. It sounds terrible. It sounds worse than uh, do they know it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which the answer is no, no, they don't. No, most um, of the, most of those Muslim countries are not terribly concerned that it's uh, th- that it's Christmas. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think Muslim Africa really cares about that. Yeah, well, uh, to, to me, I, when when that song finished, I was like, that is that is even sadder than if there had never been any Christmas at all, because that hope, that dangling hope. With nothing to make it happen. Anyway, although yeah. you got to say it's better, maybe, maybe it, it at least still has the power to move. Unlike some of the uh, weird consumerist Christmas carols, like "Silver Bells," which is a great song that is about absolutely nothing. It's about people hanging lights out in the city. It's Christmas time in the city, and which it's yay. a nice image, but I mean that that song's completely hollow. The Stevie Wonder song has a little something on the inside. Mm. I, by the way, I don't I don't mean to put anybody uh, anybody's taste on if you like those uh, <laughs> if you, if you like those banal Christmas carols. So do I. I mean, I, I I like Silver Bells, but it's a hollow song. Yeah, yeah. We're we're talking about content and ideas. We're not we're not critiquing them as pieces of art. Except Jingle Bell Rock, which is a terribly written song. <laughs> It's terrible by any standard. Yes. Um, well, I think that's as much conversation as uh, as I'd had planned. Uh, you guys want to throw anything in before we go? See you in January when we start up season four. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't suppose we know whose turn that's going to be. It'll, it'll be probably be mine since I haven't moderated one in a few weeks. All right. And I've got about four episodes lined up. I just got to decide which one I want to queue up first. Well, cool. I wish you all a Merry Christmas uh, as we uh, spend these these next few weeks of, of Advent leading up to Christmas and then the days after it. Um, you know, I, ho- I hope that you have uh, good times with family and with friends and enjoy the new year. Uh, but don't forget about us because uh, we're coming back. We'll come back in January, uh, as Nathan and Michael said, and our conversations will continue with what? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. I wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. This is David Grubbs for the Christian Humanist Podcast. 
And on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, um, uh, leaving you with, well, this time, the words of St. Nicholas, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good fight. Well, some things are plain to clear eyes. Some gifts go completely unrecognized. We're shackled to hate, bound up by fear, straining to see my face in the mirror. Yeah, I once knew a man who left town on the run. He went looking for joy, but joy didn't come. So let your name with praise be adorned. Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born. Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born. I'm picking through pieces of yesterday's boasting. Hold them up to the light and examine them closely. My love is a field that the weeds have grown up in. My earth is all scorched with my wreckage and ruin. Yeah, the cup is tarnished, but the wine is true. Only the finest 200 proof. Let your name with praise be adorned Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born Holy Mary, meek and mild Full of the Spirit, full with child Stumble around through the message each year Open these eyes, open these ears Once knew a man who left town on the run He went looking for joy, but joy didn't come So let your name with praise be adorned Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born. Sing angel choirs for Jesus is born. Ho, ho, ho! <laughs> <laughs>